The following audio discussion is from Episode 9 of Astound's podcast series, AI and the Future of Work. Host Dan Turchin, co-founder and chief product officer of Astound, welcomes technology and business journalist Tiernan Ray to discuss his best practices for tech, what AI theories inspire him, and what these theories could mean for the future of work for everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you're listening. This is Dan Turchin from Astound coming at you live from Menlo Park, California. Welcome to another great episode of AI and the Future of Work. Couldn't be more excited than I am to have special guests with me today, Tiernan Ray, a longtime journalist. I followed his, uh, his articles, his thoughts, his blogging for quite some time. Just really excited to get an opportunity to speak with him today. Tiernan, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thanks, Dan. I, uh, you know, anytime anyone asks you, like, what's your background? It's like, how did, for me, it's how did I get here? You know, like, I just woke up and what happened? I know some people, there's probably two people in the world. There's, there's the kind of people who have a five-year plan and they know exactly where they're going. And so when they get there, they feel like they are, ended up exactly where they're supposed to be. Uh, I just happened into journalism 25 years ago because I answered an ad in the New York Times to work at a newsletter called Computer Letter, which was um, preceded the red herring. We kind of did what red herring was before red herring was its own thing. And um, they copied us. But we did those uh, investor dog and pony shows uh, for like two days at the the Hyatt San Francisco Airport, Hyatt San Francisco Airport Marriott, and uh, multiple times a year for technology companies. And that was um, 94, summer of 94, I got started. That was just before Netscape uh, filed for IPO. And so I just kept going. I've been writing for Smart Money. Uh, I've been writing for Barron's for many years. Always, pretty much, just about always about technology of any kind, including semiconductors, networking, um, massively parallel computing systems, software, development tools, databases, operating systems, and now AI. Fantastic. So we were, uh, we were opening up the, uh, the technology time capsule before we, we pressed play on or record on the podcast. Tell our listeners, what's your proudest moment been as a journalist over all the, all the years you've been covering technology? Proudest moment, I think that I have once in a while stumbled upon something that was relevant and slightly ahead of the curve. Something like the death of Moore's Law was something that I was either at the same time or uh, slightly ahead of John Markoff at the New York Times and declaring Moore's Law dead circa like 2015 or so, I'd have to go back and check. But yeah, a feeling like I, I put together um, what was going on and it was still being debated. That kind of is, is the thing where I sometimes get it right is looking at long-term trends in technology and saying, you know what it looks like, uh, enough things are coming together, this is what's happening. Um, so probably something like that, I would say. So whether it's that example, the death of Moore's Law, or maybe like something you just published about kind of trying to quantify the intangible value of Google's AI intellectual property, talk us through your, your process for kind of, you know, going from kind of idea to words on paper to, you know, something published. How do you, how do you work? I always just try to read a lot. I try to read so much stuff because 
I usually am surprised by cool ideas other people have. Um, you know, the whole ideas that came from economists in um, really in the 80s that are still with us about technology and who is a noise trader um, and who's a rational investor. So when I'm looking at public stocks, what do people value? Um, how do they value companies? The whole concept that um, you debate over, are people actually rational? It's something fascinating to me that is beautifully articulated by economists that I, I could not have come to on my own. And so what I, I usually try to do is I know, you know, my gut feeling, my North Star, you know, or my high order bit, as Steve Jobs said, is that um, things that happen in engineering are true and they happen over decades, like Moore's Law, um, like artificial intelligence and deep learning developed over decades. They are true, there's science and it's not owned by any one person or institution and everyone dips a hand into it at some time. At some time, So I know that's true. And so then it becomes, how does it materialize in the market? And it may materialize in the asset value of a Google stock, or it may materialize in the instantiation of a two-year-old Silicon Valley startup that has grabbed some interesting part of, you know, dipped a hand into something. But, but I always know that there's something true there that engineers have an insight into and scientists. And then it's just how does it materialize in the market? And, and I'm fascinated by you know things like what economists see about those things I know are true. I know deep learning is true. And an economist, to an economist, it's about what is the intangible value in a company? What are the intangible capital of AI in a company? And, and that, that blows my mind. And I say, wow, that's amazing. Because I know it's true that semiconductors are changing to process linear algebra to do deep learning, but I didn't think about it as an intangible capital. So that that's something where I try to read a lot to see how am I not looking at this that someone else is and, and I can learn from them. That was a good insight. It seems like something Wall Street will pick up on eventually, uh, how, to, how, to, how to quantify that as an asset. So that's certainly germane to our audience. Um, you write a lot about AI and, uh, and, and how it's impacting work. Talk us through something that you've uh, you've covered in the past. You know, call it six to nine months. Recent, recent past that that has uh, has kind of caused you to scratch your head with with regard to AI and, and how it's used in the workplace. Uh, I'm surprised by the fact that um, the discussion, the public discussion, is everyone knows that you know self driving cars are almost here. They think, and everyone knows that there's a lot of hype about intelligent machines that are kind of like people and do they want to kill us or take our jobs but the the thing that that i don't think anyone fully understands is because ai doesn't have a theoretical basis um, we don't really yet know what is the law of thermodynamics that underlies the achievements to date and so we don't know what's going to come out of um, increasingly large amounts of data petabytes of data when um, increasingly large neural network models are applied to it. And so the the whole open-ended process of statistics inside of a company, um, you know, what companies trying to do a linear regression or a logistic regression on their data to find insights, you know, for marketing is a, a baby version that um, is going to look very different in years to come. And I, I don't think we know what it's going to look like just because of scale. And so we have all these notions of AI and what we think it is, 
but we're really at the beginning of this, what still seems to be a big data problem, um, you know, that, that we haven't even gotten our heads around the scale of what's going to come out of it. In the space, we talk a lot about kind of the, the hype fear curve, or, uh, you know, it's kind of almost a continuum where one set of philosophies is that, uh, you know, the, the bots are out to take jobs and crush humanity. And the other is that, you know, we're, we're on the cusp of, you know, kind of, a, you know, an intellectual sense like we've never seen, you know, all being attributed, everything on the spectrum being attributed to um, the rise of AI and, and machine learning. I think, Dan, it's just science. I think it's science. And it's amazing to me the science is not being communicated. And the journalists are the first ones responsible for the failure. It's science. I mean, um, it, it, at some point in time, the computer people like Marvin Minsky, uh, Alan Turing, their efforts came into contact with the cognitive psychologists, Terry Sanowski, Jeffrey Hinton, Jan LeCun, Yosho Bengio. And somewhere in there, too, an amazing thing happened in the 80s where statistics came in and what um, AI, uh, Facebook AI scholar Vladimir Vapnik calls statistical learning theory. It crashed into statistics and all of the implications of that are still being teased out. But it's science. I mean, it's it's not statistics. It's not cognitive psychology. It's not just computer science. It's something new that's a blend of all these things, and which is amazing. And I just don't understand why not, not more is not done to teach the science to the average reader. It's like, you know, we've had decades of teaching Einstein and relativity and, you know, wonderful work on the, the brief history of time, you know, by Stephen Hawking. And, and people do have, kids will talk about DNA, right? I mean, a, a, a six-year-old, I overheard a conversation, a six-year-old was saying to his friend, his best friend, if my DNA were like a little different, I'd be you. So kids have an understanding at an early age that I didn't have of like DNA. And it's and and so there's an understanding of science, and it's only in this area of AI that we're talking about it like in weird folktale ways that are totally obscuring the science. And it's beautiful science. And and I think if there was a discussion of the science and less of the mythology, there'd be a less acrimonious discussion and it would be less sexy for a lot of journalists. And there would actually be a lot more common ground where it would be, hey, you know, these engineers, these scientists are doing some work with large data. Um, some of it derives from statistics, but it has a rich tradition. And some of it we just we don't know yet because we don't have the theory yet. Um, but we're making progress and we're all interested to see where it goes, just as, you know, there's, there's no enemies in relativity, right, or quantum mechanics. It's just interesting, right? Nobody says, you know, you know, uh, a Feynman was like an enemy of the state. And what was he trying to do to people? They say, oh, my God, what a brilliant guy. He, he loved science. And he loved to explain it. And he was a nice guy. So it just surprises me, like, that the science isn't taught, you know? I love the term beautiful science. We, at Astound, we actually, we teach a certification course about the kind of the principles of AI that underlie enterprise use cases like what we do, automate uh, IT and HR. Right. Um, and I'm always amazed at the reactions about just how, you know, when we strip it down to the bare essence of, like you said, the science or the math or the statistics, right. um, how, you know, I think it's very empowering to, um, People who take our course and come in, you know, a little bit fearful, always leave feeling just kind of better educated about the fact that, like that at its bare essence, it's actually, you know, the, the, the concepts are pretty easy to comprehend. What argument would you make 
to, you know, let's say you're, you're talking to, you know, a, a group of enterprise execs who are fearful about, you know, job elimination and, right. you know, Skynet kinds of, you know, dystopian <laughs> stories. What do you tell them? Well, I don't generally tell them anything because they don't usually ask me that. They would ask like right. someone IBM or McKinsey. Um, I would say, you know, if you have a place for science, there's a lot of benefits to come out of it. And automation is its own separate thing, right? I mean, there's been automation forever. You can discuss to what extent you want to embrace automation or not. But the science is something that in an applied fashion could be really, really meaningful. And like we said a, you know, a couple of questions ago, we don't know yet with the scale of data, what exactly will come out of that? Because there's unknown unknowns. There will start to be, you know, independent um, variables and dependent variables that in both cases, we just don't know what they are. You're looking at a bunch of data and you're saying, what am I supposed to be finding here? What is the XY correlation I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to be looking for. And and you can't do that on a day-to-day basis. A CIO can't do that on a day-to-day basis because they need to deliver results, which means finding um, the correlation of a definite X and Y, but maybe on their off time or as part of their career development or professional development, you know, they start looking and saying, hmm, there's other stuff in here to find. And, and that to me is like, why not, you know, and look at that and say, what could be the value here? Um, everyone else may have the wrong objective function. And we, maybe there's business advantage to having a different objective function than every other company in our industry. Well said. So let's shine a spotlight on your profession. So mm-hmm. m- many um, forecast the imminent demise of, of journalism as we know it. Um, I suspect maybe you have a different take on it. What what do you think the role is of AI in the future of journalism? They um, can't make something yet that can write well. Uh, you know, GPT-2 from OpenAI still writes terribly, even if you use, as far as I can tell, the billion and a half parameter model. And um, the New Yorker has this nice story, right, this week about <laughs> text completion and GPT-2 and, you know, basically it can't get right for the New Yorker. So that's comforting. Um, I I think that uh, there is something about the distribution of language um, that is, we haven't figured out what's the right use for machines to master that because it seems like telling narrative accounts is a fairly low yielding um, let's say outcome of an investment in a text machine and a natural language processing machine. It doesn't, doesn't seem like, seem like that's a craft bespoke industry for which, you know, given there's diminishing readership at the moment for print does not seem like a wise place to invest assets as an AI company. Um, so I feel like it's kind of a moment that's going to blow over where people are going to lose some of their enthusiasm for stuff that writes like a person. Um, But, you know, the the discussion that's been focused on fake news and such will probably yield to, there are lots of other ways for people to be fooled. So just creating sort of reasonably reasonable facsimile of texts is not, maybe not the threat it seems at the moment. Yeah, we're just at, I think, at a fascinating juncture 
where we don't really know what's ahead. And so we don't know whether to be excited about it or, or scared about it. Let me go through a couple, couple use cases that, that are, are compelling to me and just curious to get your reaction. Google and Amazon both are introducing services that will kind of use NLP to yeah. read back the news, let's say, you know, for people who are visually impaired um, with kind of intonation and, you know, potentially even, you know, you can pick the, the kind of tone. Is that viable? Is that a, is that a good thing? Which uh, thought on that? Yeah, it is a good thing, um, and it is viable. I, I will offer this thought, Dan, which is basically everything that happens with people with AI is something that's gamified, if you will. You know, if you want to know why something works, it's because people are willing to participate in an activity that they wouldn't do otherwise. That is puts them within range of a of a machine, and so. If you know, if you're, if you're the model of you know seventy years ago, where somebody sits down on Saturday and reads Barons cover to cover, is not well suited to a bot because they're going to read Barons maybe with a drink in hand at eleven o'clock on a Saturday morning. They're going to have football on and they're going to. It's just an activity that is meant for them to kind of ruminate and reflect two days before they go to the stock market. And it doesn't yield itself to a bot. But if you're looking at your phone all day long and you kind of have two moments to check in, it's almost like you're playing a video game where you're trying to score points by how much you can digest information quickly. And that's a great scenario for a bot. So anything that you can imagine that a person will do that's more like a video game where you're scoring points, you're getting shit done, excuse me, you're getting stuff done, that's, that can be well suited to developing an algorithm that will interface to that and exploit that and take advantage of it and maybe help it. Okay, so another use case. Let's kind of let, let's let's probe that one a little bit. I like I like that kind of that visual. What happens when AI is extracting a summary of let's say you know long form content? You as the author is that a threat or an opportunity that maybe AI would would summarize your content to be consumed on, let's say, a small screen device? Yeah, I can't imagine. It's increasingly hard to imagine that anyone wants anything other than a summary because it's hard to imagine people want to spend time with dense material. So um, probably to the extent that they're spending time with a small screen device looking for a quick hit of something, then the summary may be the only option that people like me have to reach some people. Because that's just, you've, you've gamified the consumption of news. You've turned it into, I need to get it done. I need to get score some points. As a person, as a reader, I need to get my thing done, feel I've completed a task, check it off, um, feel like I've got a takeaway that I can then maybe take to another venue. I, I repurpose the takeaway as a cocktail talking point or with a coworker. So yeah, that, that may be increasingly the only way except for, you know, the five people who want to sit down on Saturday and just, you know, languorously digest hours of content and think about it and, and feel the words and all that stuff. Yeah, totally. The summary may be the main conduit. And would you feel a need to be able to review the, call it the bots, kind of using that term colloquially, but re review the bot summary of your content or what responsibility do you think the call it the vendor of the the algorithm the summary tool has to you to make sure that kind of integrity of your content is maintained in in the summary 
I wish I could, but I feel that that's a role that is now increasingly over the Chinese wall between editorial and kind of production and distribution. You know, it's like I, as a writer, have all these notions of how I should represent and be represented, but it kind of is in the hands of people who have a mix of social marketing and, and sort of syndication. And they do all those things and they don't really want my input has been my experience. Um, so it's kind of, you know, I might be lucky enough to have some input. I might not. Uh, I would love it if I did as a, as a producer of words, but I have a feeling most often that's going to be an apparatus of people and algorithms that are on the syndication marketing side that are going to create what how they want to present something and and right at the moment it's seo driven it's search engine driven and it may not that may not last but still it's the model of they're trying to plug this again into the gamified audience of reading and at that point my utility as a person who happened to write this stuff is to those people maybe kind of minimal from their perspective it's a very progressive viewpoint. Uh, yeah. So let's uh, let's let's roll back the clock. So you're uh -huh. you're you're giving advice to a younger version of Tiernan Ray, a hotshot kid coming out of Princeton, newly minted historian. Uh, what uh, knowing what you know now, what are you what are you telling the younger version of yourself? Um, set up a four hundred one k much sooner. Like I, I had all these notions about you know I don't want equity and stuff because I just never wanted to be responsible for stuff. Um, but some of the things that you think about, it's like the software development curve. It's like, you know, the beautiful thing about open source and all that was that you can write a tiny little snippet of code and it could become, um, it's like the giant ball of tinfoil that Pee Wee Herman has. It keeps getting bigger and bigger. And eventually you've got something called Linux, which changes the entire world. And you can kind of think about this with yourself. It's like, when you're young and, and people tell you things like, you know, you got to think about your future. It's sort of like, it's so imposing and ominous and threatening that if you, if you didn't think about your future and just think about little things you can do, like, you know, I don't know, maybe think about putting away a little money once a month or something like that from your payroll or something. And don't think about it as the entire future of your life. Little things can add up and they can make a difference for you. Um, little habits you develop, whether they're health habits or whatever. Um, so, so take out some of the ominousness that older people impose on you by, by, by telling you to decide the rest of your life and, and work on small things the way the software community makes small little innovations and iterates and, and it can eventually change the world. It could change your life for the better. Um, and, and if you just take away some of the dread about it, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good insight. So, um, one last question. I want to make sure I, I had a chance to get this one in. So fast forward now, let's say two years out on the horizon, you and I are back, we're recording another podcast and we're talking about how AI has changed our lives, our professional, personal lives in the last couple of years. Um, what is it that we're talking about? Talking about, um, some kind of a, a sample from your life that you can't do now, meaning you have a, some kind of, it's like a statistic. You take a sample of, a, of the distribution in your life and um, there's a pattern that you know about, about your personal relationships or um, uh, your own habits from morning till night 
that you have an insight into and and maybe it feels kind of like you know, I don't even like that thing on the iPhone that tells you like, here's how much you've used the phone. Like, I hate that thing. I don't pay attention to it. And I don't really like the quantified self. Like, here's how many steps you've taken. But some version of that in some way is going to hit the mark that it's going to be like, hey, there's this awareness of my habits that I have that um, that is a pointer to some pattern going on in in me and the world that I would never ever have seen like a big picture insight um, from my little, you know, my little window of my world. Well, I hope that in two years we're back here and we're having that conversation and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll dig this one up from the archives and see how we did. Cool. Uh, and unfortunately that's uh, that's all the time we have. I feel like we're, we're just getting started. Yeah. Um, everyone listening to this podcast, I encourage you to uh, follow Tiernan, Tiernan Ray Tech on Twitter and uh, I guarantee you'll, you'll enjoy reading his stuff and learning from him like, like I do. Tiernan, any, uh, any parting thoughts for the, for the, the audience? Yeah, um, everyone try and uh, do one thing to be kind to one another on a daily basis. Well said. Tiernan, thanks so much for joining. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode of AI and the Future of Work. We uh, look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Thanks much. To learn how Astound is improving the employee experience, visit the website at www.astound.ai. 